Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. My guest today is the actor-screenwriter-comedian-novelist, all the hyphens, Andy Osho. You might recognise her from Line of Duty or Blue Lights. She's all over the place. And as if that's not enough, in her previous incarnation as a stand-up comedian, she won the Funny Women Award. Now she's turned her hand to fiction. Her new book, Tough Crowd, is a laugh-out-loud romantic comedy about a subject that's very close to my heart. What it means to be a step-parent, or sparent, as she calls it, which I think is absolutely brilliant. You know, when I look back on, on these situations... I'm just like, wow, I really did not think that through. I got myself into something that was massive and I kept thinking, how hard can it be? Andy joined me to talk about being a teenage dork, how getting back in touch with her estranged dad gave her renewed respect for her mum and giving herself permission to be creative. She also told me about checking in with your heart, why it's okay to mourn your younger self and how she realised she didn't want kids, but she did want a family. Let's go back. Can you tell me a little bit about about little Andy? Because I saw you describe yourself as someone who loved maths and being in the choir, which just seemed like, particularly the maths bit, it seemed like such a, my prejudices, like I didn't think a maths person would be a comedian and writer. Yeah. Uh, So I, I liked school for up until a certain point. I really liked school. I really liked getting homework. I would, I remember asking for homework, uh, at one point. I mean, that stopped when I became a teenager, but, um, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and the choir was like different because the, the whole liking maths and all that and liking homework, that was basically up until about 11. And then I sort of this kind of cynicism set in around 11, 12 years old, where I, I just felt like, what's the point? And I think that basically what had happened is that I'd been let down by, uh, you know, a friend that I thought was like my best friend, basically. And she kind of dumped me for cooler kids. And and I'm, I don't think I'm not blaming her, but the impact on me, because I was a very sensitive kid. And sometimes when I look back, things that I think happened to me 
might not have been actually as bad, but they felt bad because of how sensitive a kid I was. And so finding the choir was finding that safe space, you know, like where you could be a complete dork and love maths. And in the choir environment, we were just this collection of various expressions of of dork and uh, we loved each other. And we were, you know, the kind of this little family. But I think what was more important about it that we didn't realize at the time, it was kind of a safe space to be all those things where you couldn't be outside in a normal run of school. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're at school, it's like dork is the worst possible thing to be, isn't it? And it it doesn't make any difference when you've got grown ups going, oh, like when you're older, it'll be fine. You'll you'll be the one who ends up on top, you know, all of that, because when you're like 10 or 11 or 12, you don't really care if you're going to be on top when you're 30. You just want to be on top for the rest of the day or just not on the bottom. Yeah, like 30 is just a total abstraction for a 13-year-old. It's just like, what even is 30? Do you know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> that's a whole more than my lifetime, uh, you know, the length of my already lifetime away like it doesn't mean anything and the funny thing is is like a lot of the people that were the quote-unquote dorky kids is they're always so much more interesting in adulthood compared to whoever was the popular you know were the popular kids but again that that's irrelevant when you are that kid at 12 full of angst and you know just wanting to read manga comics and and, and hide it from people <laughs> Oh God, anybody's seeing you reading a manga comic like, whoa, Jesus. It's like you like maths and you read manga comics. Like yeah, this. exactly. I mean, I, I didn't, but do you know what I mean? Like that, those are the sort of like niche worlds that kids like that would be, be into and it not be accepted. And I, I, I suppose there is a thing of like teenagers' consciousnesses developing and not being fully developed so that their worlds are small and they're, you know, their priorities are different. And so we, we as adults can turn around and say, listen, it's all going to be better when you're thinking that, but they haven't got the capacity to get that. I mean, we can try saying it and then hopefully they'll look back at some point and go, oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. Oh God. I just like, I just won't go back for anything. Do you think that being in that choir and finding like a, I don't know whether home is the right word, but like say safe space there. Do you think that shaped your wanting to go into acting and onto the stage? I think that was already there, like before the choir. I didn't join the dots between that being a creative expression and then, because the acting actually came along quite a bit later. So I left school at 16. I just couldn't wait to get away from that particular environment. And so I went and did my A-levels in a a sort of college further education college. And a lot of my friends went there, friends from school went there as well. Um, but then I, after that, my higher education was at a place called Ravensbourne, which at the time focused on design and like making TV shows and stuff like that. So that, so I learned to be behind the camera for did like two year uh, HND and then spent 10 years working in post-production. So that's like all the editing and all the bits that happen after a show has been shot, but it's very behind, it's rather behind the camera. It's not even behind the camera. It's behind the people, behind the people, behind the camera. You know what I mean? It was, it was so far back. And so I stayed in that environment, working in various companies for about 10 years until it just got to the point where I was just like, I like this. It appeals to that logical part of my brain. Cause I was basically kind of like an operations manager, um, bookings person in various places. So it was all about organizing people. It was like booking people, putting people and equipment in the right place at the right time for the right client. 
And then I was like, yeah, that appeals to the part of me that likes maths and spreadsheets. But um, the, there was a part of me, like a creative part of me that I was beginning to realize was unsatisfied. I hadn't even acknowledged it like up until that point. And then, yeah, I was just really feeling like there was something else that needed to be serviced within me that, that this job would never, no matter how high I got, no matter, you know, I, I suppose ultimately you end up running your own company. That's probably where something like that, with the job I was doing would lead. It was never going to satisfy that creative part of me. I wanted to make things. And so I was working in an environment where there was, uh, you know, a lot of actors as because uh, we were all working on this soap. And so the actors and the production and the post-production, we were all in the same place. So I got to know some of the actors and I was like, oh, I think that's what I want to do. Oh God. It was like coming out. It's like, Oh, I'm going to stop telling people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't want to be an actor. Oh, we love you, whatever you are. <laughs> uh, and I didn't even know how to do it. I didn't know. I, I, I wasn't really aware that drama school was the route. I just, yeah, I was just, I'm just going to give this a go. And I, I, my mindset was I'm going to try it. And if it fails, at least I can say I tried it. That's all I want is to be able to have tried and I, and I felt like once I figured out the whole drama school thing, I felt like I was too old. I was 29 and I'd already decided I was too old to go to drama school. I didn't have enough time to waste, quote unquote, doing that. So I, yeah, I just sort of went for it and started doing like lots of short courses and workshops and stuff like that. So I knew I had to get my, get an education in this field, in this craft, but I didn't want to commit to like a three-year training thing. I didn't have the money for it either. And so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of how I started. So you said just now when you said that going kind of behind the people behind the camera was the safe option, was that safe? Who's safe? Was it like pleasing? Was it like the thing that would make your mum not worry? Was it? I I wasn't consciously thinking that, but I realised that the environment that I grew up in was not one that encouraged risk. You know, we weren't encouraged to consider an entrepreneurial life or a freelance life or a creative life because it was too uncertain. We, all our education at home was um, geared towards going towards nine to five safety, a profession, not just a job, a profession. So my my oldest brother is an architect and my uh, next brother down is, he was a senior accountant within the NHS. It's a good, solid, you know what I mean? You can work anywhere with those skills. You can work in other countries as long as you can convert or whatever. But do you know what I mean? That's good, solid. I can hear your mum saying that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if he actually said it, but like definitely that was implied in our upbringing, strongly implied, let's say. <laughs> so when you came out as a wannabe actor, how did that go down? <laughs> yeah. You know, my mum is very supportive, uh, and I, but I think um, a lot of it didn't quite make sense. So it, I, I think she was kind of referencing off how I'm feeling, how am I doing? And if I'm happy, then, then it seems to be, this is how I watch shows that I don't understand, like industry or something like that. Like I don't understand all the financial talk, but if that character is unhappy and that one is happy, then I know what's going on. And I think that's what, that's what I think that's what my mum was doing with me is like, she seems to be enjoying this. And then, you know, she came to see some shows, but the, the first thing I was in was just this sort of terrible 
show. And uh, it's funny because, uh, you know, she was well done, terribly proud. And then I invited her to see, uh, I was in a show, uh, Pinocchio, a revival of Pinocchio. And she was like, oh, no, I don't think so. And then I, I was thinking, cool, <laughs> thinking that all plays are like these really confronting, like male nudity from <laughs> taking <laughs> You know, even though it was like Pinocchio, and she's like, "No, I th- I'm good, thank you. I've had enough dicks <laughs> for my liking." Yeah. So, but she, yeah, so she was very supportive. But I think where she struggled was, uh, you know, my financial instability that came from making this choice. That was very difficult, I think, for her to see. And then it was difficult emotionally because when I went to America, I've had this feeling, I know I'm supposed to be there, but I don't know why. So we would often have conversations where I was quite upset, quite tearful, but the the, the solution was not come home as far as I was concerned, you know, so she would have to, you know, try and figure out how to best support me when the one logical thing, you know, knowing how important logic is in our family, the one logical thing to do would be, all right, take yourself out of this environment that is upsetting you. I think with my mum, as long as we're all happy, she's happy. She just wants to see us content in whatever, whatever it is we're doing. It doesn't mean she hasn't got an opinion about like what makes sense and what doesn't, but she doesn't, she's not one of those parents that's enforcing that on you. She sounds pretty amazing. Did you go to America for... Uh, was it a, you went to America to go to LA and try your luck? Yeah, basically. I well, I mean, oh my god, you're such a glutton for punishment. I know, right? So, <laughs> I, well, where that came from was really depression, actually. So I had got quite a long way down the road with the old stand-up career and stuff, and you know, I'd done my Apollos and not the weeks and. I was just really starting to get um, disenchanted with the whole thing and feeling like this chasm between who I was, who I had to be on stage and who I was in my life. I don't know, maybe because I was doing a bit of work on myself or whatever, but I just felt less and less wanting to go on stage. And then, you know, I got really depressed. uh, And uh, I remember one, one evening, just Googling like living in America or working in America or something like that, uh, or working in Hollywood. That was it. And then this course came up or this, this, this kind of networking event sort of thing where this guy takes you out to, 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 to Hollywood and he introduces you to actors and agents and um, sorry, managers and agents and things like that. I was like, is this a, is this a hoax? It sounds too good to be true because there's all these really great testimonies, and I and I kept I kept looking up. I googled the name of his event and then scam and hoax and stuff like that. Does the yeah totally yeah. So yeah, so I went and I and I it was a real struggle because I was so deep in the depression that I almost left. I got to LA and then I was like, I can't do this. I can't be around people. I don't want to network. This is not where my head's at. And I changed my flight and I told the guy, listen, I'm really sorry. I know you don't do refunds and all the rest of it, but I'm going home. And he was like, please don't go home. You are really going to regret going home. And it was the most amazing week. And I made friends for life, you know, on that course. And so I ended up just like doing a bunch of different stuff. I ended up staying in the end for like six years and I would like, I was trying to be a vlogger and then I was going to, I'm going to be a director and I made short films. And I, and I, and I think ultimately the reason that I went to LA was not to make it, it was to learn 
and give myself permission to be an artist. Because where I when I came back, I came back with a lot more self-belief and faith in my in my craft and my artistry kind of thing. Because before leaving, I did feel like how people saw me was so limited. And it's not that just being a stand-up is is anything wrong with that. If that is all you want to do and that's how people see you, then great. Public perception is in alignment with who you are. But that wasn't me. I had more to give, more I wanted to do. And so therefore public perception was completely out of alignment with who and what I was. But I was buying into it by continuing only on that track. So giving myself uh, that, uh, you know, going to America, that gave me that sort of career interruption I don't know, reinvent in a way, really. It sounds a bit poncy, really, to reinvent myself. But like, it was a little bit like that of just broadening who and what I was. It takes a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it, though? Because you had gone from, you know, behind the behind the scenes to stand up. And then you're like, okay, I did that and I enjoyed it for a while. But now it's not, I don't know, feeding me or meeting my needs or it's not making me feel great. So I'm going to step back from that again. But is that something that you've always had or is it something you've acquired as you've got older? You mean like stepping back from a, from a, a, a um, like a, an opportunity because it doesn't feel right. Like almost like an in, intuition about your. Like um, a, yeah, like a clear sightedness about what you need and then, and then the courage to go, well, yeah, it's a risk, but I'm going to do it. Um, no, I don't think I have always had it. In fact, I, I thought I was quite risk averse actually growing up, which is why I chose the Ravensbourne option as opposed to, you know, some of my peers did go off to drama school. So it's not like I didn't have like real world examples of people doing it, but I just honestly did not think it was for people like me. That's what the story that I told myself. And I didn't even really know what I meant by people like me because the, you know, a couple of people that I'm thinking of were black. So it wasn't like a race thing. Um, it, it was just, maybe it was a combination of things of growing up in the East End and working class family. And, you know, maybe it was a lot of different things, but yeah, I just didn't think that, that was an option. When I got to the precipice of like deciding I wanted to go into acting, I think that was that thing of just like this, this has to happen. I have to do this. And the, and it's not, not a willfulness. It's not a, no matter what, no matter whether there's advice, you know, you know, good advice to the contrary, I'm doing this. It's not like that. It was more like just feeling your way through. And I sometimes think of, you know, your heart is like this compass that is, you know, will always take you to your true north. So if you check in with yourself, you'll always get directed in the, in the right way of where you're supposed to be. Um, and so I suppose that's, I hope that's what I'm doing is like feeling my way through and going, Hmm, how does my heart feel about this? Well, my heart's not in it. <laughs> well, in that case, I'm not, it's not the right place for me as much as, I mean, my, one of my friends is also a comedian. He just says it's really funny because it's like, it's almost like, he says, it's almost like I, I clocked the game of, um, of up. It's like, you know, doing, getting to the pinnacle, UK stand-up anyways, doing live at the Apollo. So it's like, right, clock that game. What, what game shall I play now? And I wasn't thinking of it like that, but I, I just, I, I, what actually happened is I was looking down the road at people who are further ahead than me and I wasn't excited about what they were doing. So I thought, well, if that's what's down the road for me and I'm not excited about it, why carry on down this road? There's, 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 there's nothing there for me that's going to fill me up, you know? 
Yeah, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Because so often the problem is that you can't see any, I don't want to use the word role models. What's the word? But you kind of, you look up and you can't see anyone who looks like you. But actually, if you, if you're looking up and you can see, you can see a path, but that you don't want to take that path. That's like one, how old do you think you were when you started checking in with your heart and then listening to what your heart said? <laughs> yeah, listening. That's the that's the key, isn't it? Is like actually paying attention. Uh, I, I'm gonna say, uh, uh, you know, it's hard to know because you. I might have been doing it and not been aware that I was doing it, but I think probably the conscious one was the going into acting, you know, and like leaving uh, the relative safety of, uh, because I became towards the end of my time working behind the camera, I sort of became a contractor. So leaving that last contract, like letting that finish basically, and then going, right, that's it. I have to make a choice now. That was, that was a hard decision because it wasn't logical. I should have taken, could have taken another contract and worked in the theatre in the evenings and done something bonkers like that. But at least I would have had a regular income. But I, I just felt that, uh, you know, I had to put my lack of money where my mouth is, I guess, because it was like all, all like, you know what I mean? Like temping and, oh my God, that's when I had some of my worst jobs of like being a tequila girl and working in a bar. And I, I, you know, the crazy thing is I was doing teenagers jobs basically at 30. Oh God, that is, yeah, that makes stand up. Like given the choice between that and getting up on a stage and being booed off. It's like, I'll take the being booed off like, <laughs> any day of the week. In Tough Crowd, your main character, Abby, she it starts with a, a routine, uh, her stand-up routine, which is about being too much. Mm. Um, is that something that you identified with, kind of growing 1, up, growing into yourself? Percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I feel like a boy with lots of energy isn't considered a strange thing, but a girl who has lots of energy gets given labels like tomboy or too much or, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so I think that uh, it was important for me to have Abby B have this too much experience and go on a journey with it because it's so, it's so like, under the current of society in terms of how we relate to young women, young girls. But it is so unhealthy as well, because actually, who this who's to say what's too much? Maybe you're not enough. <laughs> and actually, Abby says that at one point, but she doesn't really believe it at the point that she says it. But yeah, uh, it's like, who's defining this too muchness? Yeah, it's like who's making the rules. It's the same. It's the whole thing, isn't it? Like when women are angry, they're like shrill or hysterical. And when men are angry, they're powerful. And it's just all of those kind of rules that we all learn when we're really young, I suppose. Oh, definitely. hundred percent. I mean, I sometimes joke like, you know, who did men get to do their PR? Because it it's perfect, you know, because because we're all convinced by the fact by the idea that women are more emotional. Because men have managed to trick us, or you know, generally speaking, we've all been managed to, managed to trick us into thinking that anger isn't an emotion, or jealousy isn't an emotion, or rage isn't an emotion. 
not that you know those are only the preserves of men, but they feel like um, socially acceptable expre- expressions of men's emotions. Whereas pretty much all of women's emotions are unacceptable unless they are like you know looking completely divine and feminine while doing it. You know, sort of demi more single tear in ghost is acceptable. Oh yes, just one tear, <laughs> one, one big fat tear trickling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the ugly crying. No, you're hysterical. Oh, <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your dad left when you were seven. Yeah. Didn't he? Were your, how old were your brothers then? Um, so they would have been... Or, probably about 13 and 14, something like that. So they're they're quite close in age. Did that sort of, did having older brothers, did that kind of offset it a little bit or not? No, not really. I think we were all having our own singular experiences experiences of it. What I realised only recently, that the ages that we were at when it happened really affect how we perceive what happened, as well as our own personal relationship with him. So, and this only came to the fore because I got in touch with him. I was having therapy again. And the therapist was like, you need to, we need to reconnect you with your dad. How did that feel when the therapist said that? Um, It it was interesting because I didn't see how that related to what I was going through. Because I think, uh, yeah, this was when the depression started. And so I had never thought to myself, I'm depressed because my, you know, I've lost contact with my dad. That's not what I thought was going on. I didn't know why I was depressed, but she was like, yes, we need to, you need to reconnect with your dad. So it took about probably a month or so to actually get physically, get maybe even longer, but to physically have a number for him. And then, you know, a little while longer to actually decide that I was going to call him. And it was a very amusing conversation in the sense of like, it wasn't the sort of emotional <laughs> outpouring that you might, you know, you might romanticize in a moment like this. It was like, can you hear me now? Cause he's in Nigeria. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? How about now? <laughs> it was like probably like that. I was 
you know, exuberant. I was like, I've reconnected with my dad. And I had this really visceral physical experience of like circuitry completing inside of me. And, you know, all the, lots of things made sense about my past and who I am and who I'd become and bloody blah, blah. Anywho. So I told my mom, breathlessly telling her all this thing. She's like, Oh, right. Okay. And I told her some things that I'd found out about him that was a, that were a bit of a shock. And, and so, yeah, there was that. I mean, sidebar. So she's writing, she's just written her autobiography and I offered to, um, to edit it. And so, yeah, so there's all these gaps that are now getting filled in of like all these things that I, I, I sort of knew about my dad, but didn't. But because I'm editing her book, uh, not only am I reading it, but I'm also having to ask questions as well. Okay, so mum, how long was dad in prison for? <laughs> you know, like stuff like that. So yeah, like finding out, I mean, I knew about that, but I didn't realize how long and where and why it had happened. I never really asked. And so this is the first time in my life I've really had a full, a more comprehensive understanding of the family history, especially like prior to us as well. Like my, what's my mum's origin story, basically? I mean, you were seven when you'd last seen him and what, how old were you when you found him? Like 37? Uh, yeah, so 30, oh gosh, it was 2012. So what did that be? I be 40. I was nearly 40. Nearly 40. Wow. Really? So you hadn't seen him for 23 years. So we had seen him. We had seen him in between. So he had, he had randomly shown up on our door one, one evening when I was probably about 11. And then we had gone to Nigeria and seen him then a couple of times. Um, I think the last time I saw him was, I think he came to the UK again and I was like in my very early twenties. So it's probably like a good 20 years since I had spoken to him. And how do you, how did his leaving shape you, do you think? So this is conjecture purely because who can know, but I think that it made me a really hard person. Like it, like basically I think when things happen to you in childhood, you, you, you create strong suits, you create defense mechanisms, you create coping mechanisms to deal with it. You don't realize that's what you're doing but you're f- trying to basically stay safe in the world. So mine was armoring up. And so I was a very defensive person, very volatile emotionally, but they were male emotions, you know, anger and snapping at people and stuff. I was very competitive, like to the point where I get angry almost if somebody beat me at something. I remember playing pool with a boyfriend. I was furious that he beat me <laughs> afterwards. And it was just like, he's like, that wasn't fun. <laughs> you know, doing things like that with me just was not fun because I, I could get so deeply competitive yeah, I would freeze people out if I like just not to, not to stop talking to them. If uh, I was upset about something, I would never express myself, uh, express my emotions. I found that very, very difficult. I was very difficult in relationships. Uh, you know, I mean, it was so I think all of those I'm not blaming my dad, but I think a lot of that came from the armoring up or the, you know, coping mechanisms as a result of him not being there. But it was also probably you know, it was probably as a result of a reaction to who my mum was becoming. Because I remember her, my experience of her was that she was very soft and gentle prior to him leaving and that she wasn't afterwards. And so I think that I had unconsciously made choices. And I, I do remember having an experience where I said to myself, oh, well, I'm on my own here like about a 10 or 11. That's very young to make a decision like that. Fuck you. I'm just like, I was getting picked on at school uh, and somebody had upset me, like teasing me about my Nigerian name. 
and and that happened a lot with foreign names, as we all know, like people find ways to do all kinds of things with them. And um, I was upset and I was crying in my bedroom and my mum sort of <laughs> banged on the, on the door, on the wall, sorry, because there was a wall between us. We were in adjacent sort of rooms. And I told her what was wrong. She was like, is that it? That is it, lady. <laughs> that is exactly <laughs> Not world. enough for you. Yeah. <laughs> what do you need? Blood? I didn't have any of those thoughts. I, it was just a, such a gut punch. I was just like, you're on your own. That was, that was, yeah, the thing. Yeah. you're just nobody, nobody has your back. And I'm yeah, not saying she's that she not didn't. on your team. Yeah. I'm not, and I'm also, I'm not saying she didn't. And, and from her perspective, like, given the things that she's been through, something like that just wouldn't register as being, uh, you know, uh, upsetting. So I don't, I, I don't think she's a bad person for like having thought that, but from that, a 10 year old's perspective of what she needed from her mama and what she got. <laughs> oh my God. It was Do you think that, um, not to psychoanalyze you, <laughs> promise. Um, but do you think that that combination of your dad leaving and that that experience you just recounted with your mum do you think that affected your relation your relationships going forward your, like your relationships with men where you were a bit like I'm an island almost I was completely and I mean in in hindsight um impenetrably so I mean yeah. anyway um but you know I was not emotionally really available because I I I always metaphorically have my bags packed because people leave you, you know, that's the, that's the lesson I've been taught. And I think that's the other thing about, you know, when you're a kid is the lessons that you get taught by how, because people forget how much kids learn by what adults do rather than what they say. And so what his actions were was just, just fucking up and leave. Like you don't even have to say, cause he didn't say anything. He didn't say, in fact, he, he, he duped my mum into thinking that we were all moving to Nigeria and he just didn't come back. He didn't call. She was like tearing her hair out. Where is he? Where is he? Is everything okay? Cause he, he was like, I'll go out first. I'll come back with you guys' tickets. So and my mum was shipping our stuff over, you know, do you know what I mean? It was like that level of deceit. And so the lesson, but from his behavior for me as a kid was, oh, you can, you just leave you just vacate. And so that's what I did emotionally sometimes with people. I think that's what that was, that shutting down of just like not giving anything. Um, but also, you know, like in a relationship, it just sometimes just wasn't, wasn't there. It was just like either, either unproductive emotions were there or there was nothing there. I'm fine. No, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, like that type so you have to this is why I had to do work you know what I mean like some people are like, oh you're working I had to I would have been a monstrous grown-up if I hadn't I I mean yeah gosh because I, I I noticed that the dreadful mum in um in Tough Crowd and I'm sorry I can't remember her name she talks about Abby as basically not having any of the grown-up responsibilities of her, that her sister has, like the kids and the husband. And uh, and um, I noticed that you don't. I mean, partly choice, mostly choice, but also a little bit of circumstances. It's always a little bit of circumstances. Or not always. Anyways, in my situation, it's a little bit. I thought I wanted kids because that, that was the model that was laid out. And then I was with somebody who didn't want kids. And then at that point, I really did want kids. And so we broke up. 
And then afterwards I started to think, well, for, for a while I was desperate to meet somebody really quickly afterwards because just simply because I wanted to have kids. And then as I was approaching 40, I started thinking, if you're quite an intentional person, like when you say you're going to do something, you always do it. You always do it. So why haven't you had kids? Maybe it's not about kids. And then I was thinking, what is it about? I was like, it's family. That's what I was actually wanting. Family is very different from having kids. Family could be a friendship group. Family could be you and your dog. Family can be just you and a partner. You can adopt, you can foster, you can, you know what I mean? It's like, and the relief that I got from that realization was immense because it just stopped the chase. Because I, I was almost frantic, like almost like sometimes I liken myself to predator looking for that skull. <laughs> No, it's not you. It's not you. Who is this person who's going to give me family? And so the relief of not having to look for that person anymore, especially as, you know, because I've got the biological clock, not just ticking, but like gonging in my ears kind of thing. So not having to worry about that was a, was a massive relief. But also the reason that Abby has uh, no kids as well is because that was the situation that I found myself in with the people that I dated that did have kids that I was drawing on as an example. I think it's a very specific situation in the step parenting model where you don't have kids yourself because it's different if you're both bringing kids to the, the blended environment. But if 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 you're a single child-free woman dating a guy with kids, man, that is a totally different ask. Cause you're still in the question of, do I want kids? Can I have kids? I don't actually know. Like a lot of times you don't know. Um, and so emotionally it, it, it's, it's a different landscape basically. So that's why I wanted that, um, that dynamic for Abby and Will. Yeah. I think people talk about it so little cause I'm a stepmom and I was 26 when I got my stepson. For me, I always felt like I was completely out of sync with my peers because I was suddenly kind of projected into this situation where I was not a mum in any stretch. I was never that. And I think the word you use, uh, sparent, is absolutely brilliant because that's exactly what you are. You're like extra. You're another person in that, that sort of role. But it was it was really, it's like, oh, Wow. So all of a sudden, none of my friends have got kids. And then as my stepson got, became an adult, all of my friends had little kids. So I was always in a real out of sync situation. And that kind of, also all that kind of stigma around, particularly the stepmother. Like, I think there's a really, uh, something I've, I've written it down, I can't find it. Oh yeah, they're always old and they have big noses and they hate curls. It just really, really made me laugh. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's, it, that's it, isn't it? That's that's how they're portrayed. And it's just like, wow, that's not what how Abby saw herself. But also, why is it like that? Like, what? why Why is that the perception that, that, that people have of, of these people? And... Yeah. So I really wanted to look at that because it's a particular emotional ask of women. I think for myself, I was just massively naive about what I was getting into. I really, really didn't think it through. And so I've gone to great lengths to change a lot of the detail because it really isn't about the guy or the kids. It's about the journey that I went on. And so I, you know, I've, I've, I've given uh, Abby, uh, all, all these, you know, different details and the stand up is not what was what I was doing at the time and all that, because 
yeah, it's really about her her journey. You know, when I look back on on these situations, I'm just like, wow, I really did not think that through. I got myself into something that was massive, and I kept thinking, how hard can it be? It'll be, we'll be fine. And just, and making all these assumptions about like, you know, Abby has a moment where she's like, what are the kids going to call me? <laughs> and Will's like, Abby. <laughs> and I had, I had a similar thing. It wasn't about what they're going to call me, but I remember the, um, the guy, we, you know, uh, was looking for, they were looking for a new school for their, for their, for their kid. And, um, I was like, I should have a bit of a say in this, don't you think? And he was like, what? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with you. I mean, he didn't say it like that, but it's just like, what? Yeah, it's like, I think there are so many things, isn't there, like that are probably, that they become true and they're not necessarily true. They're just true for you. I think I'm going to adopt Sparent because I think that's that's what you are. Yeah, you're, you're, you're falling between so many different stools. Because I remember having to, well, you know, the, the guy I was with and the oldest, he, they had a, um, a little bit of a falling out. And so there was a bit of stomping off to, to bedrooms and stuff. And I wanted to console the eldest and he didn't want to talk to me. And I was kind of like, oh, um, I've no, I, I'm not his mum to be able to say, the, to to persist basically i i had to let it go so it's a really really tricky um space to to be in but i guess i hope rewarding for folks as well to stick with it and just let, allow themselves to grow in the in the role yeah i mean yeah i definitely consider myself really lucky i mean that's that's my family you know. Yeah. And I also, I, it was important to me as well. And I hope this comes across that I wanted Elle to be, you know, at first blush, she might appear to be the villain, but she's not, she's really in pain herself. And so, um, and, and she is a child learning how to express herself and dealing with this brand new adult that dad has not forced on them, but he hasn't maybe proceeded with the care that he should have. Um, And so, you know, she expresses herself in a particular way, but I want her to be, you know, obviously three-dimensional and not people to not, they might dislike what she does, but I don't want them to hate her. No, totally. I don't think they will. I don't think they will. So where are you at now? You're 50, aren't you now? And you look fantastic. Not that that's relevant to anything, but you do. How is life now? For Andy at 50? I think it's much more settled. And I also think, you know, we were talking about this whole navigating by heart. I think actually I am doing that a bit more consciously now of like, what is the right next step for me? What do I really want as well? Like really uh, checking in with myself quite regularly and asking that question, like what, what, what do I want that's from my spirit? And what do I, uh, what are the wants that are just ego wants? And they're often not the same. And the spirit often just wants to be settled and content and secure and is comfortable with um, uncertainty in a way that the ego isn't. So so it's like really like taking a beat to go, all right, what, what, what actually is really there in terms of what you want? So there's a bit more of that. Life's a lot more, a lot quieter now. And what I've noticed with, with turning 50, so I just turned 50 earlier in the year, is kind of, you know, I'm definitely conscious now of the aging process. I think I was like 40 for like 10 years, essentially. And then suddenly I became 50. Um, and it's different. It's really different. 
what I'm uh, what I'm sort of conscious of at the moment is mourning, allowing myself to grieve who I was. Because I remember uh, I, was, I did a sort of very brief Mar- uh, Marianne Williamson workshop about aging, and I think that came up is this notion of like grieving the person that you were, because that can be part of what can cause sort of depression and mental health issues with the sort of aging process is not realizing that you're now in a different phase of life. You know, you know, your, your attractiveness will change, but that that doesn't dictate your worth. Do you know what I mean? Like I used to be a hot something like in my thirties with the legs out and the little dresses and the blah, blah, blah. That girl doesn't exist anymore. Those legs are gone. But my value doesn't hasn't hasn't lessened, but I have to have a little bit of a remember that it's sad for me actually that that's not who I am anymore. You know, I can I can look good, but it's that look good for your age thing. It's not the you know what I mean objective thirty something fit legs, you know, banging body, all the rest of it. It's not people don't relate to me in that way anymore. And as much as I do my sort of try and do my interior work to you know, be present to my value in different ways. Society is still very reverential of youth, isn't it? So like, it's not, um, we all have to, we all have to start to agree that youth isn't, youth isn't all that (laughs) before, you know, the messaging will really start to change. Even just stopping dyeing my hair and cutting it felt like a, a real massive, like act of almost like a revolutionary act. And that it took me probably about four years to get to that decision to be able to do it. It was not an overnight thing, but yeah. So, so 50 looks a bit like really getting comfortable in my own skin. You know, the messaging from outside isn't necessarily that this isn't the best to be in, you know, so I have to, so, 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 so now it becomes work because it's easy if you're young and hot to go, Oh, I'm just comfortable with my skin or because everybody loves your fucking skin. Yeah. It's more work when it's 50 and the skin is a bit sort of, you know, crepey. <laughs> I noticed that a couple of the people I've spoken to who like one who was a script writer and she had been told by her agent, basically, she had, she like, she was 49. You're, you, you're 49. You are basically 49 indefinitely. You are basically a female scriptwriter can't be 50. I was like, wow. And then I spoke to a comedian. And when I started talking about her age, she was like, well, she started making like cutting note motions at me. And then uh, she's about the same age as me. So like mid fifties. And, um, and I was like, and she's like a real, like, box smasher, rule breaker, take no prisoners. And she was like, no, we don't talk about my age. And I was like, and I didn't say it, but at the time I thought, wow, you're the person who breaks all the rules, but not that rule. Have you felt like any pressure professionally to like stick at late forties? No, (laughs) but I, uh, but, but that is because industry is slowly changing to have better representation. So if this was, if we were 20 years ago, yeah, I would have definitely, there would have been, I would still be dyeing my hair. I would be 45 indefinitely. And, you know, uh, and I I would have been giving you the cut, cut, cut signal for talking about my age. But I think we're in a new world now where there is much better representation and much more diversity in terms of how a role is perceived. 
So a senior surgeon can now look like me. A head teacher can now look like me. A senior police officer can now look like me. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, you're looking at a script and people, even in the, in, even in the writing stage, were not perceiving these characters to be looking anything like other than anything other than white men, basically. Even women, you know, white women were being sort of like cut out of the picture. So things, so, so it's made it easier now. And actually, funny enough, there were some roles that I wasn't getting because I didn't look old enough. A senior, whatnot, a head of, um, you know, Ob's Gynae or something. I wouldn't get a look in because I was, you know, I might've been late forties, but I looked early forties or late thirties or something like that, which is, thanks guys, but I really want this job. So, so, so letting my greys come out and cutting my hair and all that and, and, and discussing my age, it's not, it's not, um, strategic, but I don't think it's going to hinder me. And if it does, then what needs to change is industry perception rather than me feeling like, Oh, I shouldn't talk. I shouldn't tell anybody I'm 50. It's like I'm 50. Just you adjust because <laughs> 50 happens to everybody. And you should be grateful if you get that far because some people don't make it that far, you know. So why are we, why, why are we demonizing like these ages? Totally. I've had so much of your time. I'm just going to quickly ask you the questions that I always ask at the end and then I'll free you. But thank you. Uh, what's your emotional age? Oh, what a good question. Um, I think it's, I think it is 50. Would you, if if I'd asked you that question, say a year ago, obviously you would have been 49, but would you have, do you, would you have said that or would it, has that changed, has that solidified in the last year? Yeah, I think that if you'd asked me a year ago, it probably would have been sort of early forties. I think there's something, something profound happened when I turned 50. Like I could feel, it felt like a different phase of life. I even said to a friend the other day, I mean, you know, at my age, and she just went, yeah, what do you even mean by that? I was like, she's 10 years younger than me. I was like, this is real. This is a real yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, give us a book recommendation. So it can be something you've like lo- always loved, or it can just be something great you read lately, anything. So something that I enjoyed recently is um, Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. <gasps> Love that. Yeah. She's it, been on. She's been on the pod. Has Selena. she? Oh my yeah. God. Now it was, I found it really challenging and it's not something that I would have picked up in a bookstore. So I was reading it because I was doing a show where we were going to be discussing it. I loved it. I, I just, I was just so transported by her inventiveness and, and obviously the poetry in it and, and talking about death. I think that's, I mean, getting to 50, you think about death and I loved that she had so much to say about it and it was out there because we shy away from death. We're scared of death and we shouldn't be because it is part of life. It gives life context. So we can't shy away from these conversations. So I really love that there's, there's this like beautiful book about it. What advice would you give younger women? Younger women? <laughs> um, I thought you could say younger self. I was like, well, she wouldn't listen anyway. Um, That's probably true still though, of all younger women. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's uh, dare to take up space because I think when I was, I was scared to take up space and I, and I noticed something relatively recently that when I used to walk down the street up until uh, not that long ago, I would sort of check in with the person I was passing. Am I okay with you? And that is a strange thing to do, like to not be, to, to, to be so like unsure of your, um, uh, of how appropriate it is for you to take up space that you're checking in with strangers. Is this okay? 
Is it okay that I exist? I feel I feel sad for little Andy. Yeah, well, it wasn't little Andy. It was adult Andy. Right up until into my thirties, I was still doing that. I mean, in my teens, I was terrified. I hated walking past bus stops because I thought everyone was staring at me and everyone was talking at me, but uh, talking about me. But like, yeah, certainly up until I'd say mid thirties or something. Like, I would. Am I okay with you? And obviously, people have got like really sort of resting faces that don't look particularly available. So I would always think, no, I'm not. I'm not okay with them. <laughs> I'm not okay with that person either. Oh my God, the world hates me. That's like hyper alertness, isn't it? It's well, like that's what you get when you yeah, when you live in a household where you feel like you have to walk on eggshells as you become hyper alert as a as an adult. And that is better than it used to be. But yeah, it it was that that is something that um has been part of my sort of makeup is being hyper alert about other people's emotions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Who is your old bird role model? I, I, I sometimes think to myself, if I'm being a bit full of it, I think, would Oprah say that? Yeah. Like, would she, she, she would. would. Yeah. Well, a lot of times she wouldn't. The things that I'm thinking of, like, she doesn't, <laughs> like she's not very, um, she doesn't brag. She's not a braggy type of person. She doesn't humble brag. If she's going to say something about herself, she just says it. You know, I am the, you know, one of the most successful, you know, TV hosts and uh, entrepreneurs in my field. And I've done this, that, and the other. She just say it. She wouldn't feel a way of going, well, I guess I, I sort of, I suppose I've done well. And I, yeah, I often use Oprah as a, and Brad Pitt, weirdly. Like those are the two, like Brad Pitt say that. 
he doesn't strike me as a sort of braggy type of person either. So I use those two as a model of like, am I being full of it or am I trying to do a humble brag? And then I put it in Oprah's mouth or Brad Pitt's mouth. And if it doesn't feel right, then, then I, you know, I don't say it. I'm totally going to try that. But that, do you know what that strikes me as really interesting? Because what Oprah doesn't do is that something that is quite a female thing, which is like basically like that look for someone else to say the nice thing about you because you don't feel like you can say it yourself. She just says it herself. Exactly. And you, and that's why she's open. That's why people appreciate her. Like if someone is the best at doing something or they're the number one, this, that, and the other, when they just say it plainly, factually, it doesn't sound braggy, but it's, it's actually when people try and sort of play it down, humble brag it, that's when you're just like, oh, please. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so actually, um, using her voice as a way to sense test that is actually very helpful because it it helps me stay honest. You know what I mean? Like, am I actually trying to low key say something cool about myself rather than just saying it? And if it sounds weird out of her mouth, then I go, yeah, you're just trying to humble brag it. Just say it. What's your superpower? I think it is listening to my heart. That's a really good superpower. Yeah, we out here trying. Yeah, just navigating by by heart. Um, and last one, how many fucks do you give? You know, not none. <laughs> the art is finding the right things to give a fuck about, isn't it? It's like, and and you know, the right opinions to give a fuck about. That's why I'm not on Twitter anymore. Oh man, that's a bad place to be. But it all it all boils down. It feels like so much of this conversation is boiled down to checking in with your heart and listening to it. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, when you make decisions based on that, sometimes to the outside world and even to your own logical brain, they don't make sense, but they make sense to your heart, and your heart never steers you wrong. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the episode with Selena Godden, who wrote the book Andy Recommended. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more.